So the talk this evening is on the movement from our samadhi practice to insight practice. And I'll give the first part of the talk saying some more about the nature of samadhi practice and then take us into a kind of orientation towards some of the practices that we'll be starting to work with uh, tomorrow, which will be more those of the insight practices and particularly focusing on developing insight into impermanence, into dukkha, sometimes translated suffering, sometimes seen as reactivity, and then as looking at not-self or anatta. And I'll invite you right at the beginning to listen to the practice, or listen to the talk, I should say, while also continuing your practice. It was very interesting for me in doing periods of samadhi practice to be at talks and to actually stay with the samadhi practice during the talks. At least have the thread going, a little bit like the meals. You know, not if you were 100% on the breath, what would be the use of me talking? <laughs> Maybe 50-50, but keep the, keep the thread of practice going. So we've been working, starting to work with this model for the retreat of these three main forms of practice. The samadhi practice, which we've been engaged in for nearly two days. The insight practice, which we'll be especially focusing on in the next two days. And then the last area, which we call the opening to awakened awareness, which will be focusing on the last two days, the last two full days. And we've been <clears throat> supporting the practices that, we're, that we've been doing so far, the samadhi practice, <clears throat> and we'll continue to support with these two other core forms of practice, that is the metta practices, the metta practice, the heart practice, and then the emphasis on embodiment. And actually, I like to think of these five areas, they really outline the core areas of our practice in general. Developing samadhi, developing insight, opening to this larger, spacious, awakened awareness, but having the grounding, especially in the body and in the heart. And it, they, the way of seeing it like this really goes a long way. And it's a, it's a, I find it a wonderful integration of these different elements of our practice. And we'll be continuing with the samadhi practice. We're not ending samadhi practice today. You know, some of you have found a great love of samadhi practice, some of it newly developing today. <laughs> right? So it was some, sometimes like yesterday, oh, what, have I, what am I doing? <laughs> And then today, uh, moments of peace and for, for many of us. So we will be continuing, you know, as I've mentioned a few times, that we'll be 
continuing to ground, as it were, in the samadhi practice as we continue on with these other two modes. So in a way they're sequential and we can also have a sense of how they integrate together in our practice. And we'll be emphasizing that. And generally the samadhi practice especially gives us a very, very good ground. I'll go into more detail on this to develop the insight practice, to see more clearly. It gives us the stability of mind and the relative quiet of mind to see more clearly outside of the domination of the habitual mind, at least to some extent. And then the insight practice and the samadhi practice help us open to awakened awareness. So we've given some emphasis in talking about samadhi practice to pointing to some other words that help us bring out this sense of gathering and resting and ease and relaxation, which go against the usual connotations of concentration as a word in English. And we can use, again, words like composure, gathering, uh, steadying the mind, Uh, One person who wrote a a very helpful book on samadhi practice, actually just called Samadhi Richard Shankman, who who often teaches at Spirit Rock, talked about unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness as an account of what uh, samadhi is. And we've mentioned, and Susie mentioned somehow, this is actually a very natural quality And in a way, our samadhi practice is refining a natural quality. It's refining a quality which we see in other species. If you watch, uh, I don't know, if you watch, I, I remember studying samadhi here at Spirit Rock and looking at a heron very, very focusedly or very, with a greatly samadhi type mind, looking at probably a possible prey. (laughs) And in fact, the the poet Gary Snyder once thought, once said that he thought that um, uh, samadhi practice and other forms of meditation may actually have developed out of the stillness of mind required in hunting in indigenous cultures. It's interesting. Interesting interesting to to contemplate that. And We've all had that kind of uh, deep immersion that is, again, as Susie was saying, is not exactly the same as the samadhi practice, which is based on one-pointedness, being just with one object. But we've had those experiences of immersion, whether in, again, could be art or creativity, sports, uh, you know, just really listening to a friend. Uh, we've had those experiences. I remember that one of my really formative experiences where, where I had something like this depth of stillness of mind came one of the only times I did like an all-nighter in college. <laughs> you know, many of my friends did more than I did, but one night I was just really focused on writing and studying and I just stayed with it. And it was like there was no time. I was totally with the flow there's no sense of self. And uh, I remember coming out into the dawn 
in a very different state of mind. It was actually quite wondrous. And I, I imagine we've all had experiences like that in some way of immersion. Could be the, the way that sometimes the beauty of the mountains or the forest uh, stills our mind. And that's, that's a kind of samadhi, we could say. And again, um, Susie was pointing out really a few different kinds of samadhi. And I think that kind of immersion that we often experience um, is one form. And it actually, for me, it actually gives a, a very good sense of some of the aspects of samadhi and also some of the aspects of what we call not-self or anatta. Because those experiences often are we're just, as it were, functioning in a very full way, very much like the um, Hungarian psychologist Csikszent Mihályi talks about as having a flow experience, right? You know, and again, it can appear in 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 many many forms: being a musician, you know, artist, being, you know, in the zone in sports and so forth. It's it's very common. And Susie also talked about the quality of uh, momentary samadhi, which in a way we we point to with our mindfulness practice. Uh, the technical term is kanika samadhi in, in Pali. And this is sometimes called momentary or moment-to-moment samadhi, where we're with uh, changing objects. And we're focusing a lot on the kind of samadhi, samadhi which develops just with one object, focusing on one object. That kind of focus on one object can lead us to some deeper states. And one way of talking about uh, where samadhi can go is it has the potential to take us to states which have different names and are talked about differently in Buddhist tradition. One way of talking about uh, a significant deepening of samadhi is uh, often labeled with the term access samadhi. Some of you know that term. It comes from the Vasudhimaga. It's not in the teachings of the Buddha. Vasudhimaga is a fifth century text which actually has influenced how we practice samadhi quite a bit. It influences particularly how it's been practiced in Burma and Thailand, and which has had a big impact on how we practice at Spirit Rock. And that kind of access concentration develops when the samadhi starts to become more automatic not so different from those immersion experiences. We're actually concentrating deeply, you know, as an artist, musician, in sports, but like there's no effort, right? We're just there. We're not saying, oh, I got to concentrate more. We're just with that flow. And that can happen in our meditation as well. We can be with that sense of flow. And as the samadhi deepens, it does become more automatic. So there's actually no not that same kind of effort that it takes sometimes to start it up or to get it going, not that same need to keep on coming back. That can develop that way. And that reaching that type of samadhi is a very powerful way to then move to look at um, changing phenomena, to look at impermanence, to look at dukkha, to look at uh, the nature of the self. And there can be a sense that there's different metaphors. It's like we are in the groove or riding the rails. 
You know, and there can be that sense of the staying with the object is just, um, in a sense, easy, automatic. And that can open up to deeper states, which are um, sometimes called jhanas, where there are deeper states, and they're understood differently in different approaches. Sometimes it's understood as this full absorption with the object. And sometimes it's understood a little bit differently as deep samadhi, but where there also can be a noticing of whatever's happening. So it's understood a little bit differently. The value, I think, we've seen, uh, probably already many of us, in developing samadhi, that when we are really with the practice of samadhi, when there's some degree of stillness, we move away from distraction. We move away from habitual tendencies of mind, from the very strong uh, discursive mind. We have the potential with samadhi to have a stable, non-reactive, still, awareness just of the object. And this, again, makes it possible for us to then turn that capacity of samadhi and look at any phenomenon. And and when we look at the old text, the purpose of samadhi is always to develop insight for the purposes of freedom. That's always the emphasis, not samadhi for its own sake. With the samadhi, we can see through our typical repetitive thoughts. We can also access through samadhi uh, certain degrees of peace and even bliss and pleasure, which can be quite quite important. And they, they, I think as Susie was pointing to last night, there's a way that samadhi practice teaches us something about the deep resources of our being. That in our being are these amazing capacities for peace, for deep pleasure, just in being. As the practice develops, it's quite remarkable. Just in our very being, there are these capacities. And it, again, can weaken the desire to satisfy ourselves excessively outwardly. We don't reach quite so much when we know that just in my own being, I can have a certain peace and almost like a kind of uh, resting, just a resting in being. It makes reaching for things or experiences less appealing. It's more of an inner, a basic inner being, almost a sense of being, of enoughness can be there. And samadhi practice can open us up to that, the quality of enoughness. We can temporarily get a sense of the suppression of our usual habits, tendencies, and what, again, we sometimes call the hindrances, that wanting, not wanting, restlessness, 
um, low energy and so forth. It's quite remarkable that when, the, when there is samadhi, it can actually override any of those, including sleepiness. One can be quite sleepy, and when there's samadhi, it actually overrides that when it's strong. It's really interesting. Now, that's temporary. <laughs> the overriding of these uh, challenging or difficult energies is temporary, and that's why we actually need to turn to the insight practice. The understanding is that samadhi overrides those uh, tendencies in a temporary way, which can be very useful. And the insight practice has the capacity through seeing deeply to uproot the basis for our confusions, our delusions, many of our habitual tendencies. And again, that's why the pointing is always to the, the insight practice. I'll come back to that uh, story, story of the Buddha that when he was practicing these periods, these long periods of samadhi practice with those uh, two first teachers that he had, he did have that sense that this is not really getting at some of the core issues. It's not getting at the sense of ultimate peaceful resting, we might say, or ultimate understanding. And he really wanted to uh, point towards that. He wanted to find a way to have this deep satisfaction. He had a sense that the samadhi practice didn't do it fully, even though in many of the traditions he was working with, that was the understanding that samadhi practice took one to the deepest spiritual kind of experiences. And so he came to see that there could be a deeper, a deeper way of knowing. He talked in one of the uh, discourses where he talked about his own experiences. He's, he talked about having basically hung out in samadhi for a long time, way more than our two days. Although I have to say, how many of you do think that we've actually been here for four or five days? <laughs> Anyone think that? Okay. Interesting, isn't it? It's very... So he talked about that. He said, concentration or samadhi by mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated is of great fruit and benefit. I too before my awakening, while I was still a bodhisattva, not yet fully awake, generally dwelt in that dwelling. And he was with a group of yogis for a period of time with whom there was a, an aim to be very ascetic, to get rid of pleasure and to, um, to not be caught by the trap of the pleasant and to be able to be with unpleasant. And so this is a tradition of 
um, yogis who still exist in India where they might undergo austerities or ascetic practices. And the Buddha was, was in that. And at a certain point, he was feeling, I think, a kind of dissatisfaction with this whole approach, as we've been mentioning. And he remembered an experience when he was very young, when he went into a deep kind of samadhi, probably he was 13 or 14, underneath a rose apple tree. And he remembered the pleasure of that experience. And he thought maybe pleasure isn't so bad. <laughs> and at that point, he, he went through quite a lot of uh, movements. He took more food. He was open to a gopi, a milkmaid, offering him a kind of porridge, much like the oatmeal we have in the morning. <laughs> and the Buddha did not complain. <laughs> and he had that porridge. And uh, many of us like to think of this as almost like a balancing of the hyper-masculine austerities, asceticism, with taking in the offerings of the feminine because it was right after that, that there was awakening. I like to interpret it in that kind of archetypal way. And it was indeed, after taking that nourishment, he had an intuition that awakening was clear, was, was near. And he sat down under the uh, famous bow tree, a kind of fig tree. And he sat down and he first went into samadhi practice he did samadhi practice for a certain amount of time, and then he turned his mind towards seeing phenomena, towards seeing the nature of things. And through that process, he came in his understanding to see the roots, the ultimate roots of suffering. And he came to awakening, and it was through that process of moving from samadhi practice into looking at phenomena. And that's what we're about to do. And so there can be that uh, great connection of the samadhi practice with the insight. We need the samadhi practice really in order to be able to really cut through the habits, cut through the typical um, states of the mind, to be able to uh, have those work down and it's interesting that uh, there's been recent research into the brain. They actually find that there are different parts of the brain affected in samadhi practice on the one hand and inside practice on the other. It's quite interesting. And they find that when the... Um, Samadhi practice uh, develops, it activates a part of the brain called the uh, anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC. <laughs> I'm not an expert on this, I'm, but I'm, it's the first time I think in a talk I've used these fancy words. <laughs> okay. um, and it actually tends to activate a part of the brain and people who have highly developed samadhi have that part of the brain activated. Whereas with the insight practice, we actually deactivate 
a part of the brain called the PCC, which is the posterior cingulate cortex. And that, that is the part of the brain connected with categorizing and conceptualizing that the insider mindfulness practice tends to deactivate that. One thing that's interesting, in some of the research, they took some advanced yogis and they found that some are able to both uh, activate the ACC and deactivate the PCC at the same time, yielding deep samadhi along with insight. That's one of our aspirations. <laughs> we'll give special instructions on, you know, what ACC and PCC modulation. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe in 30 years it'll come to that, right? Things are happening quickly, right? And so, um, so we want to kind of have that have that understanding that we can be quite peaceful and we can be quite uh, uh, one-pointed and yet we're only, in a sense, covering over the, uh, some of our habits temporarily. And so we want to turn, in a way, to insight practice. That'll be my, my focus for the rest of the talk, to look at what are the basic, what's the basic nature of that insight practice? And why would we want to leave the peace and even bliss and wonderful feeling of samadhi? Philip Moffat had a nice phrase. He's a colleague, a co-teacher at Spirit Rock. He said, why would we want to go from sukha to dukkha? <laughs> Sukha means happiness. It's one of the qualities of the uh, concentrated mind. You know, there's happiness, there's bliss, different qualities um, are traditionally understood. And with, um, with our inside practice, we go right into seeing how we're reactive, how we're n- not so happy. We're, so why would we want to go from Sukha to Dukkha? And the answer is, um, what's the answer? It's basically because uh, uh, going into the province of insight practice brings about freedom. And it's not really either or. We actually bring along the sukha as we look at dukkha. So... So traditionally, I think I mentioned this um, the first evening, traditionally there, there are three core areas where insight is developed and these lead as those get further developed to the kind of the ultimate freeing insight into Nibbana, which the Buddha talks about into Nirvana. And, but those, these three areas are really the core areas of our practice. And for any of us who've been wondering Again, uh, I've been doing insight meditation for 10 years, five years, three years. What kind of insights am I supposed to have? Well, listen. These are the, these are the three set in a little more, little more depth. And again, the three are insight into impermanence, 
insight into dukkha, often translated as suffering. I like to translate it as reactivity. An insight into anatta or not-self. And, and uh, impermanence is anicca. So you might often hear uh, people talk about anicca, dukkha, anatta. These are sometimes called the three characteristics of phenomena. And I like the usage uh, by a, a British teacher named Rob Rebea, who talks generally about seeing that freeze. And in particular, with relation to these three areas, he talks about three ways of seeing that liberate. And I, we, we, like that, we like that terminology. It takes us a little bit away from a traditional way of talking about this, is talking about the three characteristics. And we, we avoid a little bit thinking that these are some metaphysical qualities out there. They are the qualities of phenomena. And they don't, in a sense, exist in some metaphysical realm. They're just the, the nature of things when we look uh, carefully. So there, we, we're going to talk about the three ways, the three ways of seeing. Wes Nisker, uh, one of our teachers here, who's also a stand-up comedian, he had a very nice way of talking about these three. So listen to these. He's going to mention uh, dukkha first, uh, impermanence second, and then uh, uh, not self third. So this is his uh, brief summary of these three ways of seeing. Life is hard. It'll put you through the changes, but don't take it personally. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I'm gonna talk um, especially about impermanence and also about dukkha or suffering or reactivity, I'll just mention uh, anatta briefly. And Susie will continue some, particularly with uh, dukkha and anatta in the talk tomorrow evening. So the first is anicca or impermanence. We're encouraged to develop insight into impermanence. And on one level, it's obvious. Everything is changing. On one level, why do we need to look at impermanence? If I asked you, is everything changing, what would you say? Yes. Does everything arise and pass away? Yes. Except for me. (laughs) No. no. Okay. So... So we'll come to that in a moment, right? But um, on one level, it's clear, but the finding by the Buddha and by many wise practitioners is that although we may know intellectually about impermanence, we actually don't see it clearly. We don't see how things change clearly for a multitude of reasons. And that looking into impermanence is key to freedom that looking more deeply into it. In many ways, one can actually subsume looking into dukkha or suffering under impermanence 
and also anatta under impermanence. Meaning, or let, me, let me say why that is, that, that the, the fact that everything's changing, some of the, teaching, the teachings on dukkha really point to if we actually don't recognize the way everything's changing and there's a flow of things and either try to grab hold of something and keep it from changing or push away something that is happening, the result is suffering. And the same thing is that the whole sense of a self often is based on a misunderstanding of change and impermanence. We tend to see ourselves and others as way more permanent than we are. In fact, there, one tradition that I studied in Tibetan practice, in the uh, Bon tradition, um, all that one looks at in the whole system in order to develop insight is impermanence. You don't look at anything else. You just really look at impermanence a lot. And that's taken to be adequate for the purposes of coming to freedom. It's said that the Buddha's last words were transient are all conditioned phenomena. Strive on with diligence. Be aware that everything is conditioned and impermanent and bring that into your practice. One of the great Tibetan teachers, the uh, 16th Karmapa, who died in uh, 1981, uh, once went to the US Congress and uh, someone asked him, if you could summarize all of Buddhism in one sentence, How would you do that? I won't make a comment about the level of depth that that (laughs) suggests. But uh, how would you do it? And his answer immediately was, everything changes. That was his summary of the essence of Buddhist practice. And there's a very similar story with the uh, Zen teacher, um, Suzuki Roshi, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center, was also asked, can you give the essence of Buddhism in a nutshell, and he said, everything changes. So taken to be very, very fundamental. There's a chant which we'll do, um, I think starting tomorrow evening. We'll we'll do some, we'll do actually do a meta chant this evening as well. Uh, We'll do a chant that goes something like this, that it's chanted in monasteries and many, many times, many places. Anicca vata sankara upatawa yadamino upakitawa niruchanti desang upasamo sukho. Something like this. Here the translation would be, all things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings deep happiness. We'll chant that, and that's uh, um, a chant that's been going on for thousands of years, that centrality of impermanence. In our practice, we want to especially be looking at how things arise, how things stay, and how things pass away. And we'll, we can really do that in 
two main ways. One way is to look at impermanence in what we might call the, the gross dimension. That is, we can look at how ordinary phenomena change, how the seasons come and go, you know, uh, governments come and go, um, the success of sports teams comes and goes. Sorry to break that on you local fans. <laughs> For those of you not in the area, we have a local sports team, the basketball team, which is in a, a peak, which many people hope will be permanent. <laughs> so, um, and we can reflect on that, and we can also reflect on our own impermanence. We can reflect on how I arise also and pass away. And often that can bring up things. And so one way of doing impermanence practice is simply to bring to mind how things change. I did once a practice for about two years, 10 minutes a day just thinking of of different things that change, just in a very ordinary way. This can actually have an effect, as well as including in that the fact of my own arising and passing or different things in my life. You can see what comes up when one does that. And that's, that's done as a practice, something like that in many spiritual traditions, just bringing to mind change and permanence, including my own impermanence and, and death. And part of the reason for, <clears throat> for that practice is to see clearly But part of the reason for that practice is to bring about some sense of urgency. Given impermanence, given my impermanence, what's important? So a lot of impermanence practice really has that intention to activate in our own being more of a sense of priorities. What's really important for me? And it also helps us to see clearly, to see clearly what's happening. And ultimately to be able to look at changes more with clarity and with non-reactivity. This is a haiku from the Japanese tradition from uh, Mizula, who was a student of the famous haiku writer Basho. Some of you know Basho. This is a haiku about impermanence. Also reflects a fair amount of equanimity as you'll hear it. Since my house burned down, I now own a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) The second way of practicing with impermanence is to look into the more subtle dimensions of of impermanence, more moment-to-moment experience. And that's we'll be actually practicing in both ways in the next days. And that would be simply to notice in our experience, initially, just how one thing after another occurs in our experience. So we have to open up, not just focus on one object like the breath, 
but start opening up to different objects. And in fact, I'll invite us for the session before breakfast just to come back to our ordinary mindfulness practice, stay with that some for a few hours, and then in the uh, morning instructions, we'll go into a few variants of impermanence practice. And so we can be with the, uh, we can be with the flow of experience and just notice, not particularly dramatically, just notice as I sit here, oh, there's a sensation here, sensation there, or this sight, this sound, and just be with that flow. We can be with the flow of experience with, through all of our senses. We can also, and part of the training that we'll do tomorrow is to be able to just stay with one sense. We can stay with hearing, even right now, just stay with sound. Listen to how things change as you listen for just a little while. We can work with any of the senses. We can notice how thoughts change. Again, this isn't supposed to lead to some big dramatic metaphysical insight, but it's just getting, staying with the process of impermanence. And over time, when we do this in a sustained way, it can really open up our understanding. And we can begin to see, as again, partly the reason for the mindfulness practice and the samadhi is that we can start to go beneath the level of conceptualization. That to be with impermanence in a way, we have to escape the net of language to, some, to a significant extent. Because we can, as we look more carefully, we can see that in many ways, our language, admittedly very useful, tends to make us think that things are permanent. Tends to, you know, our concepts. There is a tree. It's almost as if the tree is just there and there's no sense of change. You know, or here, is, here am I, Donald. And a lot, of our, a lot of the way our language works is for practical purposes, we simplify experience, but we don't see change and we often assume when we just use the word tree, we don't have the understanding that the tree is always changing. Again, for practical purposes, it wouldn't be so useful to say, I think I left my keys underneath that continually changing mass of, <laughs> you know, this, we just say tree, right? And so there's, there's a use to that, but language in many ways camouflages impermanence in all sorts of ways. And we can start to see that. And so when we go beneath the level of concepts, we can start to open up to being with impermanence in a more direct way. The second of the, and there's a lot more I could say about impermanence. I actually have about three times as many notes. I'm, um, but I want, to, uh, I want to move on to dukkha. <laughs> Important. Yeah. Um, and so the second of the three is having insight into dukkha. And I'm deliberately not translating it because the translations are varied. 
And they're actually even in the text, there are quite a few different meanings of dukkha. I think for our purposes, and this is really uh, my own perspective, the most important sense of dukkha can be captured by translating dukkha as reactivity, by the tendency to either grab hold of some part of experience somewhat compulsively and automatically or to push away some part of experience compulsively and automatically. And that kind of uh, reactivity could be also understood as a kind of resistance to experience, to being with experience. It's done, again, it's done in an automatic way. The usual translation of dukkha is suffering, which could be okay as a translation as long as we understand that it's different from simply the presence of the unpleasant. Because the injunction of our practice is to end dukkha. And being a human being, we will never end the presence of the unpleasant. Sorry, sorry to tell you that. <laughs> yeah. But the Buddha, when he was older, he had backaches, he had sometimes had headaches. He would sometimes tell his assistant, Ananda, my headache's killing me. Can you give the talk tonight? <laughs> I'm guessing that he said that. We don't have actual <laughs> records. And, and so, um, so there has to be some distinction between the presence of the unpleasant. So we could make a distinction between pain as simply the unpleasant and uh, suffering as the reaction to the unpleasant. And that would that would capture the same thing as the meaning of reactivity. Where it's like, I, I go to Kentucky to teach every year because I, I lived there once for four years and got to um, you know, have, still have a lot of friends there. And one of the times I was there, I, I, one of the people I was working with was a hospice nurse. And she reported a woman who was a double amputee in the hospice. And at the end of her bed was a sign that said, pain is a given suffering is an option and that's the that's the understanding of dukkha you know that it's that reaction that could be the self-judging blaming of others tensing and so forth and um, one of my favorite teachings brings this out quite clearly and this is a teaching which i think uh, a number of you have heard because most retreats i give it but it's still my my favorite teaching of the buddha this is the well-known teaching of the two arrows, okay? So here it is, okay? And the Buddha was talking with a group of practitioners and he made the observation that whether one is a dedicated wise practitioner or what he called an ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I think he was probably, we lost something in the translation. I don't think he was being overly judgmental, but don't know. Um, but he, that's, that's the translation. Uh, but people who have not practiced and people who have practiced, everyone experiences at times the unpleasant, right? We, we all sometimes have unpleasant physical experiences, unpleasant emotional experiences, interpersonal experiences. We're sometimes treated unfairly, unjustly, and so forth. What's the difference between a practitioner and a non-practitioner? 
they said, please tell us, we don't know. <laughs> and so he answered his own question, which was a major mode of the way he taught. And he, so he said, when a, everyone experiences that quality of the unpleasant, that's true. And he particularly focused on what was physically unpleasant. He said, when a non-practitioner, which also means us when we're forgetting to practice, when a non-practitioner is with the unpleasant, which he likened to being shot by an arrow, he called this the first arrow. He said, when a non-practitioner is shot by the first arrow, the non-practitioner tends to shoot a second arrow, and we could say at oneself, at others, at both. And the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. So what, what does that look like concretely? Shooting the second arrow on the physical level might be that we, we tense around the physical experience. And that's very, very common with um, pain and with so forth. So some of you know that uh, the first intervention in the medical world using mindfulness was with people with chronic pain. Because in a way, they could be taught not to shoot the second arrow. And I've heard doctors say that as much as 80% of some kinds of chronic pain isn't the original stimulus, but it's the reactions. It's the shooting of the second arrow. And we also know we could easily, with because of that physical pain, shoot the second arrow emotionally, judge ourselves, judge others, etc. Again, that when we have, when the first arrow takes the form of uh, a difficult experience, a uh, difficult emotional experience, difficult interpersonal experience, we would often react by judging, blaming ourselves, the other, you know, acting in some reactive way. That would be shooting the second arrow. And we could also do that socially, as a group, as a nation. A lot of what occurs in conflicts are people or groups shooting the second arrow because they're not dealing with the first. I like to interpret the nonviolence of Gandhi and Dr. King as actually teaching exactly the same thing. We have received pain. We will respond very fully, but we will not pass on the pain. We will not shoot the second arrow because that just keeps things going cyclically. There's no end to it. And so for me, this is um, a way to understand dukkha. Dukkha is the shooting of the second arrow. That's why I like to translate it as reactivity. And in a way, we shoot the second arrow both when we grasp and when we push away compulsively. The two forms of reactivity. Another reason I like the word reactivity more than suffering, because it points to both forms. That's a quick way of understanding the nature of dukkha. And it can also make sense of why it's actually a reasonable goal to lessen and even 
aim to eliminate reactivity. It doesn't make sense to try to eliminate pain, but it makes sense to try to be less reactive. And I'll, I'll leave it to Susie to bring out some other senses of the nature of dukkha. And we'll, again, tomorrow, I think in the afternoon, we'll do various practices which help us work with looking more carefully at dukkha. Some of it's just looking out for any moment that we're reactive, being on the lookout, studying it. One of my Tibetan teachers uh, had us press our hand till it became painful in order to study dukkha. I don't know if we're going to do that. <laughs> you know, not having any dukkha? Oh, okay. Not having any? <laughs> Here's some. <laughs> right. And then I'll just say a few words about this teaching of anatta or not self, and Susie will uh, take it, take further whatever I've said. Um, I have to say that of the three, the teaching of not self, I and many others find to be the most confusing. Even the very translation of the term anatta is done in different ways, and most scholars I've read, read or heard from say that the best translation is not self, but you'll sometimes hear it translated as no self which I think can be quite misleading. And it's very confusing. You know, what does it mean? Do we, are we supposed to get rid of the self? What is the self after all? And um, there, there are a lot of interesting um, humorous accounts of this. One of my favorite comes from the kind of the treasure trove of uh, Jewish Buddhist humor. Some of you know this well. And this is uh, from that, this is, uh, it, it goes like this. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. (laughs) So maybe we're off the hook. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there there are just tons of confusion. I I have compiled many of them. I actually won't go through. I mean, the, the language is confusing. Even people sometimes use the word ego, which is extremely confusing because sometimes it means egotistical, but then in in mainstream psychology, ego is just an ordinary descriptive word which doesn't have those connotations. Anyway, we're gonna try, I like to keep it simple. Maybe I'll just rest with this. I like to keep the exploration of not self uh, very simple by looking in two ways. First of all, looking to see where there can be a sense of the self as what I call very thick. I use the metaphor of the thick self and the, thin, and the thinning of the self. And I got those, the metaphor, of the thinning of the self originally from uh, colleagues, uh, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder, who are teachers of, especially of samadhi practice. And they used the metaphor thinning the self to, as a description of one part of what happens in samadhi practice. And I've kind of taken that and used it as a metaphor that can be helpful with um, practicing in this third way with not self. And so first we look to where the self feels really thick and it's big, right? We have a sense of, oh, you know, I you know, I'm, have a lot of sense of self now because I'm really reactive. Or I have a lot of, in this instance, I have a lot of self-image, right? Or I'm really self-conscious. Those would be examples of the self coming up in a big way where I touch one of the areas of my experience where I have wounds, 
and I think, oh, I really have to defend myself. I don't really think that, I just do it. And so one of the ways we look is just noticing where the self appears in this, what I call a thick way, where we have a sense of a thick self. Maybe we'll say more about this um, tomorrow. And then we also can do practices which let us start experiencing with that uh, thinner sense of self, where the self starts getting thinned out. And again, those experiences of flow that many of us have had at, at times give examples of that. Very little sense of self when I'm in the zone in sports or in, mu- in playing music really spontaneously with no sense of self or my experience studying. You know, a lot of those experiences, and there also are meditative experiences or meditative ways of training that help us to be with experience without with minimizing the sense of self. And the Buddha taught, this was his main way of teaching uh, anatta or not self. And so we'll go into that uh, tomorrow. Let me just finish by um, talking, coming back to that sense of our aim being the balance of samadhi practice and insight practice, of bringing, bringing those together. This is from, I think I'll give three short readings. This is from the Buddha. One who has gained samadhi, but not the higher wisdom of insight into things, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has gained the higher wisdom of insight into things, but not samadhi, should make an effort to establish the one and attain the other. One who has gained neither samadhi nor insight should put forth intense desire, effort, exertion, impulse, unobstruction, mindfulness, and attention. Okay. One who gains both these things should make an effort to further establish these states. That's the instruction. Bring them both together. Develop them both. This is a poem by T.S. Eliot. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been point to one end which is always present. And he'll give a, a metaphor which I think can be seen to point to this combination of samadhi and insight. He talks about the still point of the turning world. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards at the still point There the dance is, but neither a rest nor movement. And do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. And there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been. But I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. I think that's pointing to that sense of stillness, samadhi, being present with the movement of things. Achan Cha had a beautiful phrase 
for this combination of samadhi and insight, he talked about still water flowing. Still water flowing. He said, for most people, there's either still water or flowing water. But for the practitioner, there is still water flowing. He says it is quite remarkable. There is still water flowing. There's that sense of stillness at the same time that there's movement. And that's a way of pointing to this mature integration of samadhi and insight. So I'll stop here and invite us just to sit for a few moments. Thank you for your kind attention. And we'll have a little less than half an hour walking period. Come back at nine for, again, for metta practice. Probably, again, won't do the full period. People have been practicing hard. But we'll end this time with some chanting. It'll be, we'll do metta practice and then a metta chant together. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.